Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. My guest today is Dr. Mark Peel, who's a pediatric intensivist at Wake Med in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the founder and chief medical officer of 410 Medical Innovation, who you might know as the creator of the Life Flow device. Now, I started my life before medicine as a biomedical engineer, and I worked for an artificial heart manufacturer. So this topic is really important to me. Medical innovation requires industry in some capacity. We need people to make the stuff that we use as well as to create new things. But there's a ton of difficulties with getting a new idea the whole way through the approval process to market. And there's also some question about what the interface between clinical medicine and industry should be. You know, historically, there was abuse of that relationship in an unethical way. And I think we've swung the pendulum potentially a little bit too far into holding industry at an arm's length. But that interface has to be figured out in some fashion. Mark, can you tell me how you entered the arena to create something for medical use? First, it's not something I ever envisioned doing. I'll say that up front. So I'm kind of an accidental entrepreneur. I'd say that the, the first inklings of the idea came years ago when I was a fellow and I was doing research in hemorrhagic shock in children, had become fascinated with trauma. And we did a lot of work in the physiology of hemorrhagic shock. And I had a patient who was in an MVC and we didn't have room in the trauma bay and we flew her straight to the PICU. So a trauma patient that bypassed the trauma bay and was profusely bleeding and multiple docs and nurses were trying to resuscitate her. And at that time, we actually didn't have the EZIO yet. So we had difficulty with access. We tried to get a, a rapid infuser, the level one to work. We couldn't figure it out. We were trying to get blood products in her and she ultimately died of hemorrhagic shock. And I, I kind of left that room saddened and I remain saddened to this day that about that story. And I thought there's got to be some better way for us to provide rapid and accurate and immediate resuscitation to someone in shock. We should never let anyone bleed to death in our hands. I recognized both in the ED and the ICU and in the SIM center, the act of getting a fluid bolus into a child who was in shock was always difficult. We always seemed to be behind the eight ball. We had trouble getting the volume in. The child remained in shock, tachycardic, hypotensive for longer than I would ever want. And it seemed to be a struggle. And around that time, someone came to the hospital to introduce the EZIO, which Jason, to you probably sounds like it's been around forever. Yeah, it has been present for most of my career. And I can't imagine functioning without it. We, we use it all the time. So I'm, 50, I'm early 50s. And in my training, the IO was kind of a last resort thing we did with a bone marrow biopsy needle in a child's tibia and was thought you couldn't use it in, in older kids and adults. It just wasn't done. And I saw that device and I was like, that's the greatest thing that's ever been invented because we now can get access in about five seconds and we can get a blood fluid, whatever we need to into that child or adult quickly. The problem with it was pushing volume of any type through the bone marrow space through the interosseous access site is like trying to push water through a charcoal filter. It's a large porous structure that doesn't accommodate fast flow. And so we would have to use syringes and stopcocks to get any meaningful flow through those IO ports. And that was kind of step two in, huh, is there a way to somewhat automate this, make it more user-friendly and actually get the 20 per kilo of fluid in that I want to in my child in shock? We are associated with the NC State School of Engineering and biomedical engineering in particular, and they are always looking for physician mentors for their 
senior class. And so I volunteered to become one. And they typically would bring an idea they've generated. And I said, well, I'll be the mentor if we can work on an idea I have. It was with those students and our Sim Center staff and a few nurses from Wake Med that we basically etched out the concept for LifeFlow, which is basically a syringe and a stopcock and a cock gun that allows you to deliver fluid a little more smoothly and efficiently and quickly and safely, actually, than any of the techniques we currently use. My question for you while we're getting into the story of how this happened is, can you give the listeners a sense of the timeline milestones, you know, from the time you had an idea until you had a workable prototype? How long was that? How many more years did it take you to get the approval and patience to start using this in the clinical setting? Actually, longer than you would think. Part of the issue was I had no experience like you actually do in in biomedical engineering, nor any type of business experience other than the business of helping run part of a hospital and a medical practice. And interestingly, those things did teach me something about business, which were ultimately helpful. And I'm thankful for those experiences. But it was actually partnership with a friend who is in the medical device industry. And we happened to be talking actually interesting the Jason on a ski slope on a lift. (laughs) That's where all of my best ideas come. (laughs) Um, I thought you'd appreciate that being yeah, Colorado, you, though it was in Utah. That's actually where we're mandated to spend most of our meetings. Yep. You know, if it's the winter, then you got to do it on ski slope. Yes, exactly. So we need to do episode two of this podcast up at some ski slope <laughs> when they open again. And we were just talking. I said, have this idea. And he said, that, you know, that's really good. It's really good. Let's, let's start a company. And we kind of jokingly said it. And it was actually two years from that point that we actually did. And how one starts a company is there are many, many paths you can take to that. But we actually just incorporated a company and it was two of us and we had no money and we put in our own funds and we contracted out with an engineer who we both knew to etch out an early design and and build a prototype. And we took that prototype, interestingly, back to the EZIO founder, a guy named Larry Miller, ER physician from San Antonio who had created the EZIO. And we took our prototype to him and said, we have a solution for the resuscitation of patients using your device in between, meaning you have a patient who's in shock or post-cardiac arrest or a trauma patient or septic shock, and they have an IO in and someone needs to get volume in because they're hypotensive. How are you going to do it? If you hang a bag up, it doesn't flow very well. You know, it just doesn't. And we showed him the concept and he said, man, that's good. We That solves a problem. We had kind of a conversation about partnering, and my partner and I walked out of that office and gave each other a high five and said, well, this is easy. Entrepreneurship is easy. <laughs> Spend a little money on a prototype, and there you go. Someone will purchase it from you. I'm getting the sense that perhaps it was not easy. It didn't work out that way. Vitacare was then purchased by Teleflex, who you and your listeners may recognize as a major medical device manufacturer, interestingly, headquartered near us here in RTP. Now they own the EZIO as well. And so any partnership with that company fell away as they were purchased by another company. So we then raised some money and we then hired our friend, the engineer that I mentioned, who became employee number one. And he and I and Luke, my other partner, began to build the company. That was about seven years ago. And so the next steps were building an actual better working prototype, and then developing it to the point where we could ask for FDA clearance. And from early concept to FDA clearance was about 18 months, which is actually a pretty fast timeline. That is incredibly fast. Yep. 
We had our first device approved for fluid delivery, so resuscitation with fluids in uh, late 2016, I believe, and got on the market kind of mid-17, but with partnership with my own hospital, began to implement it there, and the first patient in whom it was used was a four-year-old who, in retrospect, had intussusception, but came in in shock, so tacky in the close to 200s, poor perfusion, altered mental status, difficult access. They were able to get a 22 gauge in, gave her 40, 60 per kilo fairly quickly, upon which she woke up, began talking, heart rate came down, color improved. Parents said, what was that gun thing that they used? And the doc called me and said, this is pretty cool. It worked. Look what happened. She then was able to get her barium enema, which was unsuccessful, went to the OR, had a open reduction, went to the floor, um, was discharged the next day. And someone presenting in shock rapidly reversed with a targeted fluid bolus, watching vitals, watching mental status, watching perfusion. We thought, okay, it actually works now. Yeah, that, that's a really good test case. And that, that's kind of what you want. Right. And I had nothing to do with that case, right? We had implemented it in the ED. We'd trained everyone. And it was up to that physician and the nurses at the bedside to say, well, let's give it a try, man. We need to get some fluid in this girl. So from there, we, through some other partnerships at a variety of other hospitals, rolled it out. And we also realized I had created it with the thought that this is a pediatric product. Typically, adult EM physicians and paramedics are not using push-pull or syringe and stopcock for resuscitation. It's just not done. So it's not really as much of a concept. But we had a lot of adult-sized kids in whom a 500 mil to 2-liter fluid bolus made a big difference. And so we found that that worked quite well in the adult side as well. And so since rolled it out there and significant number of other hospitals and EMS systems. So there's a lot more to that story. I will also add, just to jump a bit ahead, Jason, that one of the original visions was that we would use this for trauma resuscitation and in the delivery of blood products. And so that hurdle, regulatory hurdle at the FDA is very understandably very high. And so we had originally approved it for fluid and then done further testing in eval and some device modification to make it suitable for blood. And we just received that FDA approval last week. So the dream of it being a tool to use for the resuscitation of patients with almost any origin of shock is becoming realized now that we have that approval. We have not got out on the market with that second product yet, but thankfully have the FDA clearance for it and are excited to begin to, to roll that out here in the coming months. Yeah, well, if you're okay, I actually want to ask a, a couple of the nitty-gritty details yeah. about the FDA approval process. So when when you had your prototype, did you go the route of trying to argue to the FDA that this was a product that had a similar already approved product out there? Yep. Okay, yes. so do you mind explaining to the listeners what the difference between being able to say, we're, we're basing this off of something that already exists versus this is a completely new investigational device? Right, so if you had a drug, for example, you were developing, you'd have to go through a long process of clinical trials, which most people are familiar with. With a device, there are various routes, and one is called the 510K route, and there are different classes within that. But the 510K class two, which we applied for, essentially means that we are saying there are relatively equivalent techniques out there. Our concept is equivalent to, in a number of ways, existing techniques. We will therefore show you that it is substantially equivalent to something else. What, what, what did you compare it to? Was it just a push-pull method? It wasn't because that's not an FDA-cleared technique. Ah. The thing that you see pictured on 
the PALS book on the chapter on shock is a provider holding a syringe and a stopcock. And that's, in fact, what is recommended in PALS and in many hospital resuscitation guidelines, I'm, I'm assuming even yours, is to take either a series of syringes or one syringe and a stopcock and resuscitate through those. No one has ever gained FDA clearance for doing that. And in fact, the repeated use of a disposable syringe on a stopcock is actually, we shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> I was going to ask about your thoughts on the infection risk. Yes. So our predicate product is something called the B-Bron blood infusion set. I may be getting that exact name wrong, but it's simply a set of IV tubing with a bulb in the middle of it that you can squeeze, a little ball valve and a bulb. And it's often used in ORs. You may not have ever seen it in the ED. And so we compared ourselves to that device and we wanted to show that it was at least as efficacious as that and as safe. And we used that. We employed a lot of folks, physicians, nurses, paramedics in our simulation center, and we conducted essentially human factors analysis on how easy and intuitive and rapidly can someone give a fluid bolus by these two different devices. And we submitted all those data conducted in simulation to the FDA and uh, showed that it was substantially equivalent through a variety of gauges of IVs to the existing device. That's a much simpler explanation than the complexity that we went through to get there, but it was essentially simulation work that we did to show equivalency. And then did you have to prove any animal or human model data? We did not. Great. And, so, and that was part of the 510K process. Exactly. exactly. Had we had to do that, that would have been you know, a barrier, a little too high of a barrier probably without a ton more funding. So and, and, and as you and I know, it, it is quite similar to the push and pull technique. It's just a different method of actuation of the syringe. Right. And it's, it's always funny to me whenever you start looking into what is approved versus what we actually use, how much of the stuff in pediatrics it has never received FDA right. approval, but, but we know it works. But it, you, you have to jump those hoops when you, go to, when you go to try to get something new approved. But we actually in some ways could show that this is a better technique in protecting the syringe and in using your hand to give you real-time feedback on what was happening at the end of the line, essentially insisting by the length of the device that you're your other hand is very close to the access points. You can monitor it at all times. The counting and understanding of the volume infused is actually, in some ways, could be more accurate than, than other techniques. We were able to demonstrate all that in, in simulation, and I think that was ultimately considered adequate for the FDA, which we're thankful for. So how do you go from there? You've gotten FDA approval to, to use this device in humans, but you don't have any data from humans. How do you go about recruiting institutions to let you start trying this on their patients? Wow, that's such a good question. <laughs> It, it remains a question to this day. So we get a wide variety of feedback on the concept from, wow, why didn't I think of this? It makes so much sense to why would we ever need such a thing all across the spectrum. And it turns out that it's actually nurses, not docs, typically, who have had the vision for this and understood its utility more than physicians and paramedics as well. Because it turns out that a lot of the times these clinical scenarios are, are happening, the nurse at the bedside is doing the work of providing the resuscitation more than it is the physician standing next to him or her. And we found through just some demonstrations at nursing conferences that we had a lot of like, enthusiastic feedback. And, and it was ultimately through some of those relationships we built that uh, a number of early hospitals said, yeah, sure, we'd love to try this out. And our process was that we would train a team of ED or ICU nurses. We'd give them a given number of devices 
they would try it, give formal feedback and say, we loved this. It worked really well. Can we now incorporate that into our workflow? And so it was actually through many relationships we developed with nursing leaders and physicians, to be fair, but both nurses and physicians that we stumbled upon a few hospitals who wanted to be some of the early adopters. And and it's actually at several of those where ultimately some of our uh, research data will initially come a couple of years later. You know, I, I don't have any financial conflicts of interest with LifeFlow, I, and I forgot to say that off the top, but my, my interest in a product like this actually came during fellowship. I was involved in helping to design an algorithm for sepsis resuscitation for our ER because one hadn't existed. Mm-hmm. And it was really it was really meant to be a just a general paradigm for, hey, here are our goals and here's how we want to try to meet them. And we had a, an adult-sized patient who I had asked one of our nurses to push pool an entire liter fluid bolus. And the nurse is this big, hulking, like former military guy. I loved him. His name was Steve. And he came to me afterwards and was like, man, you can never ask me to do that again. That was hard. And I was like, what do you mean? It's just push pull. And then he made me go do it myself in a, like a simulated, um, basically an IV into a, into a bucket. And I was like, yeah, that, that is really difficult to do these volumes. And I lost track of how much I had given. Like I had no idea by the fourth or fifth syringe. And so I, I personally am one of those people who the moment I heard about this product was like, yes, that absolutely solves a need. And it's, it's really easy to use. That's an awesome story. And I think you illustrate that it, it, it was the nurse who understood the problem. You knew what you wanted to happen. You wanted that child to have their shock reversed by an adequate amount of intravascular volume replenishment. But the actual mechanism of doing it wasn't as much on your radar until you right. did it yourself. And I think that's a, that remains a hurdle for us is telling that story. I think where people have used it, experienced it, seen the clinical change immediately and realized, wait a minute, this actually is easier, more intuitive, and relatively less work than I would otherwise do. Wow, that makes a difference. So let's talk a little bit then about our reality in the way that healthcare and tech and devices are funded in the U.S. is there has to be a business component from it because the the business has to survive to be able to produce this thing that is useful to the patient. And, And it's that way, whether we're talking about drugs or products or devices, I think that there's a little bit of fear maybe from the backlash from the the drug rep era, and I don't know what else to call it, during the era where where reps were, were prominent and there was a lot of concerns about inappropriate use of medications solely because of, of money or, or industry involvement. But I don't necessarily think that we're there anymore. So if we could hit the reset button, what's the ideal relationship between those groups? Yeah. And then maybe what you're getting at is in particular when it's a practicing physician or academic physician who then stumbles upon either his or her own invention or becomes involved with an enterprise that's making something. I imagine you still view yourself as a clinician and a teacher and all of that comes before the business piece. Absolutely. And I do think as a, as a quick disclaimer, there's obviously potential for corruption at every turn, right? I mean, the incentive to better yourself financially can always get in the way of of making good decisions. And so transparency in all this is really important. But I would say there's potential for incentive for corruption in every line of work that we're engaged in as physicians, whether it's academic, whether it's writing grants or ascending the academic ladder or getting funding for your lab or whatever it is, we can make decisions that are more in our self-interest at the expense of someone else or our patients even if we're not careful. And I don't think that being involved in entrepreneurship is necessarily entirely a different animal than any other, any other enterprise we might become engaged in. 
But we do have to be really careful about it because of, of what you mentioned. There, there is a, a healthy skepticism of industry. And again, I never felt like I would be involved in it. And now in a way I'm a part of it. And, and I'll say that my, my work mission statement has been that I want to take really good care of sick children, teach others how to do it and figure out better ways of doing it. That's kind of my like broad brush mission statement. And I didn't understand that that third one might incorporate creating a device and being a part of a company, but I am. And so then how do I practice and teach objectively and promote a technique that I actually invented and, and to which there may be financial incentive ultimately attached is the question you're asking. Right. And as I've told you offline before, don't ever go into entrepreneurship in medicine because you think you want to make money at it. It's just not the right incentive and it may never happen. And it's a long, hard, difficult, dangerous journey. So just take that out, just cross that off your list of reasons to do it. So you're, you're not filthy rich from this product. <laughs> oh my, no. Hardly. <laughs> we, you and I, in our daily practice in ICU and the ED, depend on new cool technology. Who invented better ultrasound? Who invented video laryngoscopy and all the devices associated with it? The drugs we use, the ventilators, the PPE, the everything we need, the tests for COVID. A business has to come up with a take risk and then make it work. And for a good idea to be propagated, it actually has to be profitable. And so there's a right incentive to make something work financially. And I continually find myself straddling these two worlds and facing the tension between them and wanting to say, no, 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 no. I'm a physician. I'm a teacher. I'm not first part of a company. I have a good idea that I want you to use and I, I don't want you to take better care of your patients with it. But I just find that the best way to do it is be completely transparent about it in all my speaking. And so everyone knows, yes, I'm the inventor. I'm also an employee of the hospital. I'm also have to be objective in, in how I teach people about using the device. And, and so I don't know that I have a great answer to you other than if any of your listeners or you yourself are thinking about getting into the creation of a technology, it's a minefield uh, of difficulty and that has to be walked carefully and transparently. And I, I even appreciate you asking me to come on the podcast and, and discuss it because it's, it's a kind of a lonely world. I, I know a few other docs who are doing it. And you find that there's not a lot of folks who understand those tensions. And I, and I wish it would become more prevalent and more acceptable and just kind of a normal path. And maybe it will someday. But I'm going to still go down it because I believe that we're making a difference in patients' lives and changing the way people think about resuscitation. And I hope to keep doing that. So we have talked a long time today and there, there's so much rich stuff in here. What are the big takeaways or lessons learned or, or even like caveats that you would want our listeners to make sure they leave this discussion having heard? Right. So I would say I'm someone who's often thought, huh, there's got to be a better way to do X thing, better way to intubate, better way to resuscitate, better way to image, better way to talk to a family, whatever it is, that's fine. That, that brings risk and trouble sometimes and also brings interesting new ways of doing things. And, and one of those ways has been to create something. And I would say, if you have that on your mind, it's a, it is a long, hard path. Thankfully, I do think the world is becoming more open to it, Jason, and hospitals are increasingly developing pathways for clinicians to become innovators. That's a good thing. And so I would say that that pathway is somewhat more open maybe than it was almost 10 years ago when I started thinking about that. So the environment is good or better. I think we are far from what you might declare successful. Our, our product is in probably 
60 to 80 hospitals and helicopters and EMS agencies. And we've gotten a bunch of patents and FDA approvals and have an awesome team. And and um, I think it's made me a better doc in some ways, thinking about how do we provide resuscitation? Why isn't it done well? What are the barriers? And how can we do better? All right, Mark, thank you so much for being here. I think there's a lot more here uh, and I'm looking forward to having you back on. All right, thanks, Jason. That unfortunately is where we're going to have to leave it. There's just never enough time to get through all of the amazing stuff that these experts have to say. I hope that if you, any of you are thinking about innovating or producing a device, that this will encourage you to seek out your local resources for it. It's not an easy road, but it's an absolute mandate for medicine to continue to improve. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the Little Big Med podcast at our website, www.littlebigmed.com or at any of your favorite podcasting platforms. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.